Welcome to Be The Church Podcast with your hosts, Chad and Melissa McBean, where we discuss a variety of topics relative to the active Christian life as we work to submit our lives to become more like Jesus each day. Today we share one of our bonus series episodes from our show, Latent Treasures. These shows are filled with incredible guests to inspire you and encourage you throughout the week. Inspired by a quote from C.S. Lewis, this show seeks to highlight people who live their faith out in ways that are somewhat discreet. But make no mistake, the impact that they are making in the lives of those they touch is anything but latent or discreet. Our hope is that this series will engage you, intrigue you, challenge you, grow you, and gives you a chance to interact with us in your own journey of life in a way that may ultimately help draw you nearer to the God who created you. If you enjoyed this show, please like it, share it, and even subscribe to it so you can be alerted to future episodes when they're released. Our guests today are chaplains with their local county fire department. They have had that role for roughly 17 years now. Prior to that, they were in leadership and ministry of their church for over 20 years. And one might think that they have always had this great foundation of faith and theology which led them down this path, but you'll soon learn their experience was quite the opposite. In case you were under the impression that we can script out our lives and plan all the plot twists ourselves, you might want to stay tuned in. Both Larry and Diane's lives are a triumphant example of how wonderful and powerful God's love for each of us is. Both experienced significant trauma as children. Both had exposure to quote-unquote church as children too, but the messages never connected. Both of them were about to switch cities with each other on the exact same day as one joined the Navy and the other was headed to university. But as God's sovereignty would have it, the university plans changed, and that allowed the two of them to meet shortly thereafter. And while we'd love to say the rest of their story is history after they met, their relationship was anything but smooth in the early years. This story has so many lessons of value, I have a feeling almost anyone who will ever hear it will learn from and relate to multiple aspects of their stories. This show is special. Not only in the ways that it shows God's presence in our lives and how much God cares for us, but also because Larry and Diane are good friends of mine. In fact, they are my uncle and aunt, respectively, and both have had a personal impact in my faith development as well as I got to enjoy a few years in their youth ministry when I was a young lad. But now, without further ado, please welcome Larry and Diane Huffman. I want to welcome two close friends and family members of mine this episode. We have Larry and Diane Huffman, who are my aunt and uncle, actually. And uh, one, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's really cool. You guys uh, obviously have been a big part of my life and my spiritual journey um, since middle school age, essentially. But um, I have realized as kind of planning a little bit for our talk today that there's a lot of your early life history that I don't even know, like what got you to the point where you at that point in time, we're involved in youth leadership, but um, you guys are, are great examples of people who live out their faith and um, wanted to dig in and, you know, uh, if I get too nosy, tell me, but wanted to dig into kind of how you guys got from, you know, A to Z so far, and I know that there's lots of life left, so um, we'll talk about that too, but um, yeah. 
yeah, thank you for, for joining us and sharing your stories and being willing to be open about, you know, all the goods and the bads along the way. Um, but as a, as a kind of framing point, um, it's 2020. This has been, we're getting towards the end of this fantastically fun 2020 year, right? And all the COVID craziness. Um, share right now kind of where you guys are at, what you are up to, um, and then we'll kind of rewind and, and uh, go back to childhood and, and bring people up to date. Oh, 2020. Can we forget this year? <laughs> that would be the best With the right meds, I'm sure we like. could. <laughs> they, they say it's kind of going to be the, the, the new cuss word, you know, oh, 2020. Yeah. But, um, well... Um, it's been a challenging year. Um, we, you know, we got involved in the little quarantine period and staying at home for about almost three months. We got a huge walking regime in during that time and being, we're chaplains with the, uh, one of the local fire departments in our county and, um, so we were unable to get into the stations. Our chief, I don't know if he was concerned for us or thought maybe we would cross contaminate because we go to all the stations. And so they were they were shut down for just shift level occupancy at the station. So did that um, make you have to operate and do your job as chaplains remotely from a distance? Like they're inside the building you're outside and you're just i can't be very private that way so i imagine right. virtual yeah. would probably we, make more sense yeah we made a lot of phone calls and emails to individuals that way um we still uh, responded to the community call outs and stuff so if there was some sort of a crisis a death um we could go on the calls but we just couldn't go in and do our job being around the stations and uh so um but a yeah. lot of standing outside on those calls since um yeah. ppe was kind of um in shortage then before it got distributed um we didn't have vent masks or any of those kinds of things so going into a home where there was potentially uh infection uh was discouraged and even restricted for us so yeah. we had to meet with grieving families outside and uh that wasn't real fun especially in yeah. february and march yeah many of the chaplains in our area had to respond via telephone and oh, wow. console grieving families over the phone i mean i just can't even imagine trying to do that yeah so i'm glad that we were able to re at least respond and in be in person yeah for those who don't know because i don't even know fully i'm pretty familiar with the role of a chaplain but if you could just kind of give 30,000 foot level, or even if you think the details help, what exactly does a chaplain do? Our primary job, and I think most chaplains, their primary focus will be the personnel, um, the frontline guys or their police officers, um, their families. Uh, we make sure that their well-being is, you know, their behavioral, their mental health is up. Um, there's a phrase, uh, even a, uh, I don't know if it's a diagnosis or not, but compassion fatigue can set in. And so we try to help them just to 
walk through the mundane, you know, I mean, there are the calls that just come out. We have BLS calls, which is basic life support and ALS, advanced life support. And 90% of the calls are BLS and people have um, gotten into the habit of overusing uh, 911 for back pain, toe pain, sore throat, I mean, all sorts of things. Um, elderly people that are just lonely have called 911 just, well, I really don't have any issues. I just, I just wanted to see somebody, you know, and, but if they call 911 and they say something like, I'm just not feeling well, like I'm, I'm then we'll send somebody to that call. And so some of those calls can really build up on where on you know the older guys because they've done it for 20 plus years and so helping them to just look at humanity i guess at a different level than just this is making me so angry that we have to do these calls we're not firefighters anymore you know we're babysitters babysitters you know basically and so it's a, it, it's a challenge to keep them encouraged. And in today's, you know, arena that we're in with the COVID, every call, they have to gown up. They have full to PPE. full PPE. We have APR respirator masks that we wear. They have to wear these gowns. I mean, they have to don everything and then duff everything. And it's, it's, it's a pain for them. And, and it, uh, it gets irritating. So we try to keep them encouraged. We take them cookies. We tell them jokes, you know. We cook we, dinner for them. We, yeah. That's cool. And what um, what typically draws, I'm trying to make this more broad because I, again, know a little bit about your background in ministry. So is that typically the only type of person who would be drawn to a chaplain role? Or what draws somebody or... Um, if you guys have insight into other people's choices to go into the role of a chaplain, you know, where do those people kind of come from? Well, there are hospital chaplains yeah. and that's strictly all they do is walk around wards and hallways and hospitals and visit sick people, um, which is a completely different um, field of chaplaincy than what we do. I learned this year, the NFL football teams have chaplains. I had no yes. idea. Sports and teams college. have chaplains. College teams have chaplains. I did not know that. A lot of major corporations have chaplains. Cruise ships have chaplains. That's the gig I want now. I want to get on a cruise ship. <laughs> yeah. Any cruise corporations out there looking for a chaplain? We have yeah. interested <laughs> candidates. Yeah. No, but, and, you know, there's hospice chaplains, which is really, I, I don't think you get so connected to people and at the end of life, it's, that's all you would see. I mean, the calls, when we're called out, we don't get called to the happy calls. We don't get called to, you know, baby births or the pinata swinging parties. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic when we are called, people are having the worst day of their life yeah. and um, experiencing the saddest part of life for them and so it it takes a real grace i mean people ask us how can you do your job and it's like 
I don't know how we do our job. It's just a grace that God has given us to be able to kind of let that stuff roll off your back like water on a duck, you know? It just, I mean, some of it gets in there. If there's something that brings a, you know, like if your parents have passed and you go on a call that's similar or oh, that guy looks like my dad or oh, that was my mom, you know, it's, those kind of get inside of you and wear on you and children. Those are tough. Yeah. But Both of us have experienced uh, death in our families. I experienced um, a lot of grief growing up. And so um, I think that God used that for me as a springboard into what we're doing now. Um, and so my father passed away when I was 20, a month before my wedding. And so that shifted me into this other place. And I now know what PTSD is because I was textbook. And um, so, but God doesn't waste anything. Yeah. So, you know, he used that to, for me to be able to minister to people now who are suffering those kinds of issues. So it kind of begs the question, obviously you're dealing with people who are in a massive period of, of strain and difficulty, and that's your day to day. It's almost like chaplains need chaplains. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I mean, I know inside the ministry in general, pastors often, and part of the reason why pastors often burn out before they even hit five years is just because of the difficulty of it besides, you know, you know, the teaching part and the community growing part. There's a lot of hard elements of, of being in ministry um, that deal with stuff that's so emotionally draining. It, are there things like that? Are there support groups and chaplains groups where you all support each other? Well, there are some organizations. There is a national, international, actually, the Federation of Fire Chaplains that we belong to. For police, there's the ICPC, ICPC International Conference of Police Chap Chaplains. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's a, you know, a help there. You can reach out to fellow chaplains that are there here locally where we live we have the tacoma Pierce county chaplaincy and um, it's an organization that helps agencies find their chaplains and so that's uh and then just getting to know your local chaplains that are in other departments um so we're able to hey man can we get a cup gotta talk yeah and but we're a unique animal in the respect that we are a, a married couple yeah, in this absolutely. together. And so I think a lot of our healing comes from praying together as a husband and wife after we've experienced it's, it's um, there's a difference between trauma and vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is if I sit here and tell you about a call we just went on, but firsthand trauma is we experienced this together. We went into a call where we both smelled the smells, heard the screams, you know, um, saw what we saw together. And so it wouldn't just be vicariously me telling somebody else about it. We were in it together. And so because of that, it can be um, 
it's kind of a two-edged sword sometimes even because we're not when you know like the bible says when one is down he's got the other to pick him up sometimes we are down together and in those instances we have to search out either our pastor or other chaplains Mm -hmm. but usually our we help each other and then just going back to the station where those firefighters were present on that call before we got there and them telling us what their experiences were um, when they arrived because they saw and felt everything that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so oftentimes just talking with other people is the biggest help. And th- that's our, that's typically what we do. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, do you see yourselves in this role for the foreseeable future? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, contracts are contracts. We're contracted with our department to, to provide the service that we provide. So as long as they renew it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. continue. So. Yeah. Not all or, chaplains are contracted though. Yeah. And that's why I said we're kind of a unique animal, um, in the respect that we are, it is a paid position for us and we're required to put in so many hours per year. So we are paid for that, not a lot, but um, our firefighters also contribute donations. And if it weren't for those donations, we wouldn't be able to to do what we do. Yeah, well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Um, and are you doing anything else in conjunction with that or is that pretty much a full-time massive um, responsibility that's pretty much it i mean we do some small groups things in our church diane has a, a small group with some young ladies and i have a leading a men's group at our church and um so yeah very cool very cool All we right. do spend time with a lot of retired firefighters yeah okay so keep their morale up because you know when they quit their job that's been their sense of purpose and identity for years mm-hmm. now it just all comes to a screeching halt and a lot of them sink into depression yeah they don't necessarily miss the work they miss the, the guys pe- the pe- they yeah. miss being at the, the station whole culture because you live together you know nine days a month for 24 hours a day and you you get pretty close to your crew and yeah so yeah. Uh, and is that officially part of being a chaplain or is that some stuff you guys just do is, you know, kind of to bolster their, their psychology. And like you said, kind of help with the transition and dealing with retirement. I think everybody should keep up on their retired guys. Um, it's just. Not all chaplains yeah. do that. It's not that important to them, but it's kind of a priority for us yeah. because we were close friends with a lot of the retirees. Um, from, I mean, we, we've been doing this for almost 17 years. So when we started, some of those men were the same age we are right now. And, um, they retired years ago because they only put in like 25 or 30 years and then they're done. Chaplains just keep going. Yeah. You know? And so we check back on those that we were friends with and just to see how they're doing. Cause they, they impacted our life. And so we just want to keep their, um, their hearts encouraged. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So like I said, 
interestingly enough, I don't, I should probably evaluate this on a wider scale. I don't know much about either of your childhoods. So um, I don't know if you want to go one at a time or go side by side, but let's go back to youth as far as y'all remember and or want to share. Um, and what was what was life like for each of you growing up? Was it uh, typical suburban? Was it, you know, I think, Diane, you're from San Diego, right? And um, Larry, I know you're from, were you born in the Northwest? No, I was born in Kansas. You were, okay. So I didn't know when that transition happened. No cause... longer there, Dorothy. We're not there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, I'm not sure well, where I'm we are anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, well, um, like you said, I I was born in San Diego. Um, my, my mom was a uh, cosmetics rep and a model uh, for Mass Factor. And my father was a chiropractor and a nutritionist and a pulmonary specialist. So um, we grew up in the heart of San Diego with my dad being a doctor. And I attended um, private school, all girls school my whole life. And um, when I was five, my mom had was a severe alcoholic. And um, my dad thought that his love would change that. He married her being an alcoholic. And um, that never changed. In fact, it progressively got worse, even with um, the, my birth and the birth of my little sister. Um, my mom never was able to maintain sobriety. And so when I was five, um, my father filed for divorce. My mom had a history of unfaithfulness in the marriage and um, had went on to, she was married twice before my dad and went on to marry several times after my father, just a really messed up lady. And so my father back in the day, um, it was unheard of for a man to raise his children, let alone two little girls. But because of the chronic situation that existed in their marriage, he was awarded custody of my sister and I. And so he technically raised us. And um, the summer that their divorce became final, my sister and I were sent to stay with our auntie and uncle in San Diego um, for the entire summer. And when we came back, our mom was gone. All the pictures of her were down in our house, all of her clothing, everything of my mother was gone. And we had a uh, Mexican nanny that was um, a partial part-time live-in nanny. She, she and her husband resided in Tijuana and he would bring her over um, Sunday nights and she would live with us from Sunday night through Friday night and go home on the weekends. And so she was non-English non speaking Oh so goodness. we had to learn Spanish real quick because she wouldn't accommodate my sister and I on any level unless we spoke Spanish to her. So we would ask for something in English or, or point to something and she would say, no, tell me in Spanish. She'd say it in Spanish. So we had to learn how to speak Spanish really fast. But um, from that point on, it was just day-to-day uh, -day going to school. Um, my dad's doctor's office was attached to our home. So he would come in and out of the office during the day to check on us when we were home. And my mom lived outside of the home. And for the first year after the divorce, we could not see her at all. And then after that, she was awarded uh, visitation and then gradually weekend custody. 
So and were so you guys brought along understanding wise or like did he have it was that ex I mean, you're five right but was that explained like or was this just kind of like we'll explain later when you can understand it better um it was explained in a way i think that was age appropriate uh, we came home like i said our auntie's house to a house that was bare of our mom yeah and um when i asked my dad what had happened he said, the only way I can tell you right now, he says, mom is gone and you won't be seeing her for a year. And of course, I didn't understand the concept of a year, what that looked like or felt like. But he said, when I asked him why she was gone, she, he said, well, you know, mom has a lot of problems and mom is sick. And um, the pain of mommy being here at home would be greater than the pain of her being gone. So we... Uh, mommy's safe she's you know she's in a in a house with other women that are um, kind of sick like she is and in a year you'll get to see your mom but in the meantime we're just going to go on with life as normal as normal as possible and so that was our understanding until that year went by and we started to be able to see our mom she could come to our house and we could visit with her and talk with her, but then she would have to leave. And then that went on for a while. And then um, she remarried and that um, we got to start spending weekends with her or one night overnighters with her in her house. And so it was a gradual reintroduction to life with our mom outside of our home. Yeah. Now we're, were you placed in private schools because the education was better or was this a faith-based decision or do you know why that was? I think it was multiple reasons. Um, my dad put me in Catholic school and my little sister in Catholic, uh, you know, um, education just because of the quality of education, but also because it was the parish that we were raised in. And so we would go to that church and we were familiar with the priests and the nuns. And so it was as much like family as we could possibly have familiarity. Um, so the same nuns that we would see that I had grown up seeing in church uh, were now my teachers okay. in the, in the, um, in the school. So yeah. my dad wanted to kind of maintain that level of normality for us. Okay. All right. So eventually, a few years in, you start to have, you know, um, like you said, some nights at your mom's with her new husband. Um, mm -hmm. And did that continue that way? Or did the, did you ever, what was your relationship with your mom like? Was it close? Was it, you know, did it grow cro closer despite her alcoholism or? Well, I was always my mother's mother. I always, I grew up with very, very codependent, very enabling um, because I was always worried about her. There were nights when my mom and dad were still married that she wouldn't come home. And so I had to lay in bed and listen to their fights when she would come home drunk. And doors would slam and things would be said. And so, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, it still hurts a little bit when I talk about it. But I always took care of my mom, even till 
I was an adult because she had no self-respect. So she made decisions, even in our little neighborhood, our community that we lived in, where there were bars, she would frequent those bars and she was known, um, she was 86 a lot out of those bars because she would get drunk and they would throw her out. And so even when I got older and I was working in that little community and held down a job, um, my boss would, um, one of my bosses where I worked at a local dime store would come in and say, well, your mom's out on the sidewalk and needs a taxi. And so I would have to shut down my register and go take care of my mother because I always took care of my mother, always worried about her, always protected her um, was fiercely protected, protective of her because people talked about her. And she was a beautiful model, but over time we just watched her gradually erode. And she went from being, um, in fact, she was so, such a high profile individual in the community that she was um, known by some celebrities who would, um, had yachts docked in San Diego Harbor and there were these lavish parties that she would get invited to and she would take me to. And so I met people, um, I can't mention their names, but you would know them, um, very well-known celebrities that um, I would sit on them. In, in that day. Back in those days, yeah. <laughs> um, that um, I would, be invited to these parties with her and um of course she would lie to my fa my father and tell me that i had to lie to him if dad asks you about this this is what you're supposed to tell him so i had this one gentleman who was a a movie celebrity um he had to go by the name of mr jackson because i couldn't use his real name to my dad but my dad knew who he was eventually because one night he walked by our house trying to, I guess, see my mom or whatever. And my dad and I just happened to be sitting on the, on the porch and I saw him coming toward our house and he didn't see us, but we saw him. And I said, oh, there's mommy's friend, Mr. Jackson. And my dad said, really? Well, what? how do you know him? So I told my dad, well, we go on his big boat and we have lots of parties and I color pages on his boat and they give me lots of Shirley temples to drink. And so that kind of things really accelerated from that point. Um, because my dad hired a private investigator and had my mom followed and that's when everything fell apart and it went into a very terrible, um, bloodbath of a divorce and uh, custody battles and just it went on for like I said that that we knew of the duration of an entire summer when we were sent away to stay with my auntie and uncle yeah so um, yeah did you ever um, have a chance to understand or get to know your mom's childhood story and what kind of led her to become like that yeah um, my mom was raised um, in the Dalles, Oregon, and her mother owned a dress shop just um, down the road from a boarding school that my mother was placed in when she was young 
because my mother from day one was not wanted. She was the youngest of four sisters and she was always told you were um, a, a mistake. We, were, you, we, weren't, we didn't plan on you. And so from the time that she was young, she was uh, raised by the nuns in a Catholic boarding school until she was old enough to leave there. And um, my grandpa at the time was a sheriff up in Anchorage, Alaska. And he was, she was up there with him and they became alcoholics together. And shortly thereafter, my grandpa died and he was my mother's, I mean, he, my mother dearly, dearly loved him. And he was like my mom, my mom's, um, he stuck up for her and he, he was um, just, uh, he fiercely loved my mom, but saw the injustices that were going on with my grandmother, who was very much a controller. And I also loved my grandma too. I had a very close relationship with her because at the time I didn't understand the level of control that was going on between she and my mother. And they had a very embittered relationship terrible and terrible relationship and so um my mom became an alcoholic with my grandpa who was the sheriff and um, when he passed away she moved um to anacortes and got married her first marriage was there and then she it, marriages cycle began yeah the cycle <laughs> began of alcoholism and adultery and divorce and remarriage and we were the only two that we know of. My sister and I were the only two uh, children that she birthed. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Royal CFO Services. Would you prefer to have the peace of mind that accounting experts and financial analysts are managing and maintaining your business's financials? Would you prefer to give the hours you spend on accounting back to your family and friends while resting confidently that your business finances are in excellent care? Royal CFO Services can allow you to do just that. By outsourcing your accounting and finance needs, you can improve your work-life balance, discover when to make your next big move to grow your business, and more. Royal specializes in businesses in the construction and real estate industry, agricultural industry, and the nonprofit sector. Visit them today at royalcfoservices.com to book a free consultation. Where does that kind of leave us timeline-wise? How... Um, how long did you remain in a relationship with her, like your whole childhood and into your adulthood? Mm -hmm. um, we had, it was up and down. Um, it was, the, when she was sober, I dearly, dearly loved her. My mother could be so much fun and she was a, a very intelligent, um, not so wise, but very intelligent lady. And because she made a lot of really stupid decisions in her life. And there were times even as a child, I would look at her and think, I think what she's doing isn't, isn't good. I mean, and for instance, one day we went into Sears and Roebuck, which was a department store in San Diego. And I saw this life-size, it was this little statue of a, of a monkey that was the size of me. And if you, it was holding a cup. And if you put a penny in the cup, it would flip the penny. And 
I was looking at this monkey and I liked it. And next thing you know, my mom and I are walking out of the store with this monkey and she had it under her arm. And I said, mama, I think you're supposed to pay for that. And she said, no, we're fine. And about the time we got out to the car, um, the guy, the, the um, security came and grabbed her by the arm and took us both into um, this office upstairs at the store and called my dad and my dad had to come pay for it or I don't remember what happened but my mom did a lot of really dumb things like that that were careless and stupid and I just remember th thinking as a child there's this isn't right my mama shouldn't be doing this even when she was meeting with Mr. Jackson at these parties I knew that something then wasn't right and so I was always looking out for her always trying to think for her and I would say mom are you I don't think this is a good thing. Um, we're going to get in trouble. It was always you're going to never it was going to be uh, you're going to get in trouble. It's always we're going to get in trouble because I was with her when some of these things would happen. And I questioned um, the logic in a lot of things. And even after Larry and I got married, this roller coaster of a life was continuing. Hmm. And so he probably wondered a month into our our marriage what the heck did i get myself into and i said i told you my life with my mother is crazy okay so we'll pause there <laughs> it's very interesting um yeah larry let's go back to your beginnings um and we'll go up until the two of you met and we'll we'll uh we'll we'll bring it to a uh, a fork in the river where you guys are, are together. Um, well, I always want to use Steve Martin's line from his movie. I was born a poor black child, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> you'll probably delete that. But um, oh no. Well, um, I don't. I I know I was born in Wichita, Kansas, and we moved to the Seattle area when I was one. Um, my dad worked for Boeing, and so we moved out here for a new position for him. So my upbringing has always been here in the Northwest. So was, um, was Boeing in Kansas? Yes, yeah, in Wichita, yeah, okay. they had a plant there. Okay. Um, so um, I don't remember a, a lot of my childhood. I remember uh, a Columbus Day storm where we lived in Tacoma and I thought big branches had fallen out of trees. My dad said, nah, they were just twigs. That looked pretty big to me. But um, I didn't grow up in the private school sector. I went to public school, um, moved around a lot. We lived in several different homes in Tacoma. Um, I think things changed i had a little sister um and um when i was 12 she was eight and we were living in the house i think you remember on cushman and um uh, she had cystic fibrosis and back in those days it, they didn't have much of a treatment, treatment or less less a cure for it and so she 
one day left and went to the hospital and about a week later my mom and dad came back home without her and consequently she had passed away and um my introduction to grief (laughs) um at a at a young age i mean to the point that you know and you act differently with all of all of those things happening in your life or you know kids would come up and one kid particular in the neighborhood came up and said, I heard your sister died. And I go, no, she didn't. And I punched him in the face and because I just didn't know how to respond to it. And um, but in those, um, so I think in this growing up thing, you asked about how we, um, I, I went to church every Sunday and in our particular denomination church that we went to, we did communion every Sunday and every day it would pass by I'd reach for the cup and the cracker and I get my hand smacked saying you're not old enough and I went to Sunday school every Sunday and I think up until I think right after when we were I was 12 um, you could be baptized and you could take communion and um, so I'll we'll get into all of that here on wrap it differently but um, so in that process of growing up and having the tragedy of my sister dying and and going to church my my mom and dad um it was it was tough i mean they both worked out of the home and so i was pretty much raised by my sisters um things were pretty controlled in the home that TV knobs were taken, cords were taken. Um, if the radio, if you didn't get the radio station turned back to to the country station by the time they got home, I mean, it, there was a penalty to be paid. Um, my my dad's action or showing of love. Um, was occasionally giving me 20 bucks. That's when I got older. Um, just didn't have a real structured family life, I guess, didn't. Growing up in the Aussie and Harriet days, we didn't have that at home. Um, it was pretty dysfunctional. Was it that way prior to your sister passing as well, or was it all along? It seemed a little more homey before um but yeah after that it just kind of maybe that trauma and and she wasn't the first child that my mom and dad lost Uh, you know um, before i was born i had another brother and sister that both died of cystic fibrosis um one before my oldest sister sonia and one right after sonia um they um had a son and daughter that died and then Glenda was the last one born and who had the disease uh, the po- both positive genes from my mom and dad affected her and so it really went downhill I think after that because that's where I really begin the vivid memories of the dysfunction happening um, but back to the going to church, I think that's why they had us go to church every Sunday and sometimes just the kids went and my mom and dad didn't go. But when I was 12, 
Um, gosh, that was before that. I, I guess I need to get into a, a trauma story for myself. Um, when I was younger, my mom and dad took in these three military guys that um, lived above us in one of our homes. We had kind of had a, a duplex that we were renting and upstairs was another area and they rented it out. And one of them, I don't even know what age it was where I was, I had to have been maybe nine, 10. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the age, but he began molesting me. And um, that went on probably through junior high. He got married and had his own children, but then continued that process um, with me. And so I was delusional as to why all of this was happening and trying to make sense out of my childhood. <laughs> um, I assume that means, and I hate to ask this, I feel like a, I should know better or I should know the answer, so I shouldn't have to ask it, but yeah. I assume that means nobody knew. Nobody knew. I think his wife ended up finding it out and uh, because I remember her, I think, walking in one time or he was gone too long alone with me and I think she started putting the puzzle pieces together and and I don't know if I was the only one that he was doing that with but they ended up getting the divorce and he you know in turn be you know became a homosexual in, in that and um, but um, so I don't know if that caused anything I don't know if she ever said anything to the other two friends that they were all together with in the military, or if she ever said anything to mom and dad, I don't know. Hmm. Um, but, but in that, um, I was older and getting into high school, trying to help my dad, um, do things around the house. I would just always be ridiculed for not doing a good enough job. Um, trying to throw wood because we heated with wood after we got away from coal. I grew up in a coal house. <laughs> um, you know, I would, I would be told I needed to grow some muscles. I was a piss poor excuse for a man. I'll never amount to anything in life. And um, so in that, at the same time, growing up, going to church, going to Sunday school, hearing all of the stories of Noah and Moses and Abraham and never really ever hearing anything about Jesus and dying on the cross and being, you know, I could repent for my sins and be, and have salvation. And so when I turned 12 and I could get baptized, I got baptized on the juice and crackers because I didn't know any other reason that I was being baptized. And so when the pastor asked, do you know why you're being baptized? I said, absolutely. And he didn't question it. 
And had he, I would have said, so I can have darn juice and crackers when it comes by in front of me. Because <laughs> I didn't know any other reason why yeah. to be baptized. So, I don't know where church went in our life because we kind of just quit going. I think there was a big fallout because my dad was a deacon there and something happened and we just quit going all together. Um, kind of one of those awkward things. But fast forward, um, growing up in, in the house, I, re I remember your father and my your sister your sister no my sister your mom. <laughs> that's your sister, my sister. <laughs> um, i remember them dating and a big fight happening and paula leaving and moving to wisconsin where you came along and there was a big gap in life where we didn't uh talk with my sister your mom because <laughs> like i was the whole I, family the whole family mm -hmm. um it was I, I still all i remember that day that something happened was that your your dad said something mean to my mom and i picked up my hot wheel track and smacked him in the face with it <laughs> so, <I remember> <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> so um protecting my mom, I guess. So hmm. I do remember traveling to Wisconsin to visit uh, Ken and, and Paula here. And I don't know if, I think when Tammy was born, we came back there. And um, but the, the, all of that is such a blur. Yeah. So she left at roughly 17, 18, if I recall the stories. My mom, mom to I think Wisconsin. she was, golly, I think she was 17. I think she just graduated high school and she was, I think, a candy striper at the hospital. That's how she met your dad. Yeah. And so you were, how, how many years younger are you? We just figured this out. She just turned, she just 69? turned 70. 69. 69. So I'm four years young. No. Shoot. 63. I'm three, so, so six. six years younger. Okay, so you were just starting high school, or not even finishing middle school, 13? Yeah, I was in middle school, yeah. Because okay. she said, I remember for Christmas that year, I bought you a Tonka truck, and I go, really? Wow, So, but uh, said, it's also I, the I, same time that you lost your sister. You both lost your sister, because you said that was 12 and 8. Yeah, I was 12. So, yeah, I think it was right before... Maybe the year before she left is when, when Glenda died. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, but you guys had stopped as a family going to church mm -hmm. prior to that even. Pri yeah, prior to that. Yeah. Okay. So when you were experiencing abuse, you were already no longer at church? No. Okay. Okay. I mean, it was sporadic going yeah you know and so that's yeah okay so what was your um and to a degree i didn't ask you this either diane but what were your like social lives like growing up were, did you have a lot of friends were you involved in in sports were you you just busy working around to yeah, try and help I, out 
Yeah, I tried sports. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the you were involved in band. Yeah, I got into music. Um, my mom and dad bought me a trumpet, and so I got involved in band and switched through all of the brass instruments from the trumpet to the tuba and ended up settling on the baritone through the last year of junior high and all through high school. So, okay. And uh, the school I happened to go to back in that day was really, I mean, marching bands were the thing. And so we performed at all of our football games, our basketball games, you know, the pep band and stuff. And we, uh, marched in the parades and we were known for just the stellar band we won all of our contests that we went to and so i think that's what kept me going to school if it wasn't for that in my life um i i don't think i would have made it through school wow. We're going to pause our episode right here and take a break. Call this the end of part one, and we'll join in with Larry and Diane again next week as we go into part two of their story. As I think back, it's really interesting to realize that I had gone essentially half of my life without knowing or getting to know my aunt and uncle's backstory and really what, what was part of them becoming who they are. And I know we have listeners all over the world and of many different ages, but if you have family members that have been an important part of your life and you've never taken the time to really get to know who they are or what made them who they are, especially if you think that perhaps they've always had this really wonderful life that has brought them to where they are today, ask. Ask what that history involves because I never expected to have heard about some of the traumas that they both went through when they were kids um, and that that's really powerful on so many levels not just in sharing that uh, they've been through everything that they've been through but um, I think a lot of people can relate to and or be encouraged by the fact that having something so devastating or so negative or embarrassing or humiliating happen early in life doesn't set the course for what the rest of your life has to look like. And um, I just hope everybody's been inspired so far or encouraged so far with this in, this interview. And I uh, look forward to catching up with you all again next time. Again, if you've enjoyed this portion of our interview, like it, share it, please give feedback on our site, and we'll see you again next week.